Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith Covenant Church. I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here. And today is week six of the series that we've been doing called Gold, Goats, and Justice. In this series, we've been taking a look at different stories that Jesus told. And we have been trying to figure out what do they mean and why do they matter for us. And just in case you're like wondering what weird farm animals I'm going to bring up on stage, uh, just me, sorry to disappoint. But um, what we are going to do today is we're going to dig into another one of Jesus' stories. And before we do that, let's just take a minute and pray together. Father, we're grateful for this chance to celebrate new members, to sing praises to you, to get a chance to um, connect with some of our uh, fellow church family. You're good to us, Lord, and we praise you for that. We want to lift up to you our youth who are up at Portage Lake Bible Camp this weekend. We thank you for the students that went. We're praying that even now as they're getting ready to head home, you can continue to work in their hearts to bring them closer to you, to cement the type of faith in them that will sustain them for a life of following you. Lord, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. So today's story is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. It's a little bit longer, so you might want to pull out your phone or a Bible. We'll also have the text up here on the screen. But as always, it's helpful for us to know the context that this story was, was in when Jesus told it. So you see, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he had gained some serious notoriety. He had been going around the whole area teaching and healing and casting out demons and doing all sorts of things that were making him well known as something special. And so whenever he showed up somewhere to do some teaching, people would gather. Now, typically a public teacher like Jesus, the way they would do it is they'd show up to a public area and they would take a seat and people would form a nice like little horseshoe around them and they'd teach like that. But when you had as much notoriety as Jesus, that's just not going to work because there's so many people. So in this story, Jesus shows up to a local lake and the crowds just bombard him. There's so many people there. So he commandeers a boat. Uh, The Bible puts it nicely that he just takes a boat, but I don't know whose boat it was. Does he know whose boat it was? I don't know. So he takes this boat and he goes out into the lake and he stands there and he starts teaching this tremendous crowd. And this is the story that Jesus decided to open with. It goes like this. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, The plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So you've got this massive crowd. You've got Jesus in a boat, yelling this out to the crowd in front of him. And this is what he decided to tell them. Now, remember, Jesus also has this group of disciples who follow him everywhere around like they're little puppies. You know, they're, they're trying to do everything that he's doing. They're hanging on every one of his words. And they respond to Jesus pretty much the same way we do. They're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? 
This is how Matthew describes it. The disciples come and they say to him, why do you speak to the people in parables? Basically, the disciples are like, Jesus, why the riddles? It doesn't make a lot of sense. People have a hard time understanding you. We don't understand you. Anyone ever ask that question? Jesus, why don't you just make it a little more clear for me, a little more straightforward? Well, this is how Jesus ends up responding to their question. And if you're sitting there wondering, what does this story mean? Uh, The way Jesus responds is just a little more confusing. Uh, This is what Jesus says about why he decides to teach in parables. Says to his disciples, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you did, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. All right, this is a tough little section, but it's actually incredibly important to help us gain a a better perspective of the story that Jesus just told. So basically, what Jesus is getting at is that he wants to teach in parables because it helps separate those who really want to follow from those who don't. In these verses, Jesus says he speaks in parables because there are some who desire to understand, some who really want to think about what's being said, some who are taking this really seriously. And Jesus says the parables are are for them. Those who are willing to take these sometimes confusing teachings and think about them and ask questions about them, they're going to understand. They're going to grow in their knowledge and obedience. These are the people that Jesus is talking about when he says, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. What do they have? A desire to understand, a desire to follow. And what does Jesus give them? An abundance of that. But then there are others for who, what, for whatever reason, they don't care enough or they don't want to put in the effort or they're not interested in Jesus to actually follow him. They just maybe want a free meal like he often gives. With these people, they're not going to put in the effort to understand what Jesus is trying to teach. And coincidentally, These are the people that Jesus says, whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Essentially, Jesus is teaching in parables because he wants to make sure that we realize that there is a certain responsibility on our end when it comes to following him. And parables, they either force us to accept that responsibility or neglect it. We're either going to respond to the parables by saying, Jesus, I want to understand you. Or we're going to say, yeah, whatever, Jesus, that's cool. I don't really care. Parables, they force us to make that decision. There is effort that is 
required of us to understand these teachings. And that effort has a way of separating those who are really interested in following Jesus from those who aren't. Those who, though seeing, they do not see from those who have eyes that truly see and ears that truly hear. Now, you may be like, okay, James, explain this a little bit more. I'm not quite picking up what you're throwing down. Part of what confuses us in this passage is when Jesus says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Oftentimes, this has been used to justify this view of salvation that basically says, God chooses some to be saved and not others. Now, I'm not going to prove or discredit that view. I'm going to skirt right around it. Uh, (laughs) But I am going to say that's not what this verse is getting at. Just think about this. Jesus is telling this statement to a group of guys who literally just had a hard time understanding what he was teaching. They're coming to Jesus and they're like, why do you teach in parables? It's so confusing. These disciples who Jesus personally chose, these guys who presumably have been given the knowledge and the secrets of heaven, they're saying, but we don't get it. We don't understand. How has the knowledge been given to them if they don't even understand what Jesus is saying? Now here's where this matters. The mere fact that the disciples come to Jesus and ask him to explain shows their desire to follow and puts them in this category of those who are blessed with the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. Don't miss this. It's not that Jesus is saying, oh, I speak in parables because some are chosen to understand and others aren't, and obviously if you don't get it, you're just not chosen. That's not what he's saying here. Parables, instead, create this moment of decision. Do I want to follow Jesus enough to think about it, to truly consider what he's saying? And even when it's hard to understand, am I willing to say, God, help me understand what you want here? Or do I not care enough? Do I not have ears to hear? In short, Jesus is saying, there's people that are going to respond to me with a desire to understand. Those people in their time will be given that understanding. And there are people who choose to harden their hearts against Jesus, and they will also be given what they choose. Parables, they help differentiate between these two groups of people. Does that make sense? And these couple of verses right here, they matter because they help inform the larger narrative of this story. Because Jesus, he's about to explain how this parable that he just told is all about how we choose to respond to his teachings. Check out how he explains the parable. This is what Jesus says starting in verse 18. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time, 
And whenever trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. This is really the meat and potatoes of the story today. So we're going to take some time. We're going to pick this apart bit by bit. And what I actually want to do is I want to take Jesus' original teaching and then compare it to his explanation so that we can try and see the whole picture. This is what we get. Jesus starts his story by saying, A farmer went out to sow a seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. When his disciples are like, we don't get you, Jesus explains it by saying this. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Jesus here is talking about the group of people who when they hear the message of Jesus, they reject it. One of the words that throws us off here is the word understand. Jesus says, when anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, uh, Jesus isn't saying here um, that they just don't grasp it. You know, he's not saying when anyone hears the message and doesn't get it, uh, he's, he's not saying if, if you hear it and it's not making sense to you, if you're sitting out there and you're like, yeah, I'm not quite grasping what Jesus is laying down, he's not talking about that kind of understanding. Because implicit in the Greek word that we translate as understand is this idea that it, it makes some sort of, of sense. So it's not like Satan is looking at all of you who are sometimes confused by the teachings of Jesus, saying to himself, aha, another one's confused by the sermon today. I love it when Pastor James teaches. I'm just going to come in and snatch that right out of their minds. That's not what's going on here. No, the idea is more like when someone hears the message and it makes some sense to them, but instead of seeing Jesus' message as something that they need, they respond by saying, ah, I don't really need that. That's dumb. That may be for you, but it's not for me. I don't, I don't really care. They hear it. They grasp the point. But instead of seeing it as something that applies to them on a personal level, they don't understand it. They reject it. Because if they did truly understand, instead of rejecting it, they would say, oh my goodness, that is the best thing I've ever heard. Jesus, I need you now and forever. So basically, Jesus is talking about people who, for whatever reason, be it intellectual objections, opposition, pride, arrogance, laziness, family upbringing, whatever the reason, they hear the word and they decide, yeah, it's not really something that I need. Jesus says those are the people who reject it. These are the, the seeds that fall on the path. And this is honestly the, like the least offensive and hard to understand part of the story. We've all experienced this. People, for whatever reason, decide they don't need Jesus. And you know what? That is their decision to make. But what's actually most striking about this story and probably most applicable for most of us in this room is how the next three groups of people that Jesus talk about are all people who initially receive his message with excitement. 
Jesus goes on to say this. He says, some fell, some seed fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. He explains it by saying this. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution becomes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now, important note here, uh, the rocky soil Jesus is talking about, this isn't like when you go to till up your garden and you're pulling up a bunch of rocks. What he's talking about is where the bedrock is really close to the topsoil. So there's literally only a tiny bit of soil for plants to grow in, which means that when a seed sprouts, there's no room for the roots to go down into moisture and find that water that sustains them when the sun comes up. It makes a little more sense when you understand that. Now, this is one of the places that I want to be really sensitive. Um, you know, I'm extremely fortunate. My life has been pretty easy. I had a good childhood. I've had more opportunities than I deserve. I've got a healthy wife and a kid. In many ways, what I'm about to say is about something that I have no personal experience with. But I do talk to a lot of people who tell me things like, you know what? I used to believe in God. I used to attend church, but then I got sick. But then my marriage fell apart. But then I lost my spouse or my kid. I experienced pain that no one should experience. And where was God during that? How can God claim to be good? How could he claim to be a loving father and let that happen to me? They had a point in time where they had responded to Jesus positively, maybe even with joy, but then when pain or hardship or trouble came for them, their faith withered. There's two ways I've seen this happen. First is the easiest to see. It's the person who feels betrayed by God because of what's happened, so they walk away. And this does happen quite a bit. And if you feel betrayed by God today, I just want to say, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry for the things that have brought you to that place. My prayer for you is simply that you would be able to see the goodness and grace of God, regardless what the pain is that you're going through right now. But the second way that we see this happen, this is the harder way to perceive. And it's when something really hard happens and you feel overwhelmed, like so overwhelmed that you don't even want to leave the house. So instead of going to church or spending time with your Christian community, you just say, I need this week to myself. And then this week turns into two weeks. And then two weeks turns into three weeks, turns into a month. Before you know it, you haven't touched your Bible. Your prayer journal goes unused. You haven't talked to anyone who you connect with over Jesus in a long time. You haven't been to church. And slowly, your once often thoughts of God become less and less frequent until you get to the point where there's very little in your life that points to trusting Jesus. This is the more common way that we see it happen in pastoral ministry. Something hard happens, people start to isolate themselves, and before you know it, the connections that they've had to their faith and their faith community dry up. Again, I want to be careful. To question where God is 
or to wonder why a loving God could let a terrible thing to happen, or even to feel doubt or strain or hardship in your faith during pain, none of that's wrong. In fact, we see this kind of questioning and, and doubt in Scripture all the time. Even King David cries out, he said, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My Bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where's your God? Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? David voices this kind of doubt, this kind of wondering of where God is. He says, God, why have you abandoned me? And in so doing, he validates our pain and our doubt. And we see that it's okay to have times in your faith where your hardship makes it difficult. But the difference between what David does in this psalm and what Jesus is talking about in this parable is that in the parable, the people who go through pain and hardship, it drives them away from God. But for David, his pain drives him into a deeper pursuit of God. Right after writing these words, this is what David writes down. He says, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. David realizes one of the essential truths in having a faith that has deep roots. And that is that the way through pain is not to abandon God, but rather to keep running to him. To be honest with him about how you're feeling, but to be running to him. There's no promises in scripture that say having faith in Jesus will spare you from pain. In fact, the assumption that a lot of the New Testament authors have is, is actually the opposite. But hardship should push us deeper into the way of Jesus. It should drive us to put our hope in the Lord. So Jesus is saying, hey, there are people who are going to receive me at first with joy, but when life gets hard, they're going to turn away. Instead of running closer to me, they're going to drift farther away. That's the seed that falls on rocky soil. And then Jesus tells us of this next group of people. He says this, Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. The seed falling among the thorns, it refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth Choke the word, making it unfruitful. When I was uh, first getting into ministry, my, one of my mentors gave me this piece of advice. He said, you can only care about so many things. His point was this, that each and every one of us, we are finite beings, and as much as we can pretend that we can do it all, we can't. We all have limited emotional space, limited time, limited relational capacity. In fact, I might even argue that most of us overestimate those things in our lives, and that's why we're always stressed and tired and weary, because we try and fill our lives with way more than we possibly can. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He says, hey, there's a bunch of people who will hear my message and receive it and understand why they need it. They're going to say, yes, Jesus, we need you. You are the best. But because there are so many other things in the world to worry about, so many other things to pursue besides Jesus, 
your kids advancing in your career, football, fly fishing, crafting, home improvements, vacations, volunteer organizations, all the shows on Netflix that you can just watch episode after episode after episode. He's saying these people will never have a faith that produces fruit because that faith gets choked out by all of these other things. He's basically saying, hey, many people who hear my message and want it for themselves simply will never be willing to create the space needed for the message to flourish. Every time they get excited about following Jesus, it just gets crowded out by the things, the other things that they want to have in their lives. Now, I personally think this is one of the biggest dangers in our suburban context, that all of the good things that we have the opportunity to do will keep us from investing the thought and energy into what truly matters. And what happens is our church attendance ends up being spotty or fringe at best. Our devotional life is next to nothing. And we want to give, but, you know, that house was so nice. And maybe it's a little more than I can afford, but we can do it as long as we don't practice generosity. And we want to spend more time serving or discipling our families or whatever. But all of the other things that are just begging for our time and attention keep us from it. Jesus says, these people, even though they understand why they need Jesus, they end up bearing no fruit. Now this is the moment where we've got to ask the question, eh, what's Jesus mean when he talks about bearing fruit or producing seed? And it's quite simple. If you think about the metaphor, Jesus is the farmer. His message is the seed. You are the soil. To produce fruit means that your soil creates the right environment for the seed to do what it's supposed to do. This means that we create the right environment where the message of Jesus produces in us a life that begins to look more and more and more like him. From a behavioral perspective, it means we're growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. From a financial perspective, it means that we're growing in our generosity over time and that our attachment to things is decreasing. From a community standpoint, it means that we're invested in fellow Christians and that we care about the sick and the poor and the marginalized. We're growing in prayer, our understanding of Scripture. To bear fruit means that the message of Jesus is doing exactly what it's supposed to do in our hearts and in our lives. Now, this brings us actually to the last type of soil. Jesus says, Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. This is how he explained it. But the seed falling on good soil, it refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So if you look at the big picture, there are people who are simply going to reject Jesus. They don't want to have anything to do with him. There are people who receive him with joy, but then hardship pushes them away from him. And there are people who will receive Jesus and understand why they need him, but they will care too much about the things of this world and leave no room for Jesus in their lives. But then there are those who will hear the message of Jesus and cultivate their lives in such a way where the message of Jesus flourishes. In John Stott's commentary on this passage, he says something really important. He says, the force of this parable, it's simple. In each scenario, 
the farmer is the same. In each scenario, the seed is the same. The thing that makes a difference between producing fruit and not is the soil. And Jesus is begging us to ask, what kind of soil are you going to be? It's a hard-hitting story because usually we like to think about our faith only in terms of the fact that there is nothing I can do but trust in Jesus for my salvation. But here Jesus is forcing us to grapple with this idea that even though our salvation is freely given by grace through faith, even though what makes us right with God is not our ability to obey but is instead trusting that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus makes a path for us to be included in God's family forever, even though all of that is true, you still hold some responsibility in creating the right environment for the message of Jesus to flourish in your life. When confronted with the message of Jesus, we have to make a conscious decision an intentional effort to try and align our lives with him in such a way where we allow him to transform us. The gift of salvation is freely given to us, but we still have a responsibility to shape our lives in a way that allow Jesus and his message to grow within us. Now, let's, let's get really practical. Let's talk about how this should impact us. The first thing to realize, now that you're like, oh, crap, <laughs> I'm in trouble. First thing to realize, no one's perfect. Every single one of us is broken. Uh, we love the wrong things too much and the right things too little. We're selfish. We don't do what we should. We do what we shouldn't. Uh, I don't think this has ever felt more true for me than it has now that I'm a parent. Uh, there is so much that I want to be as a dad Every day, I'm like confronted with the reality of who I actually am. Anyone know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, I'm broken. I'm inconsistent. I'm distracted. All these are things that I wish weren't true. And if we're vulnerable with each other, I think most of us would be willing to say, yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's parenting, work, marriage, my friendships, my church involvement. Sometimes I stink. I'm broken. This is a core part of the message of the New Testament. We are unable on our own to create a life that makes us right with God. We're never really going to feel like the good soil. It just doesn't happen. And that's why I think that at least for those of us who have already made a decision to follow Jesus, this story is meant to cause us constant self-reflection. It's meant to force us to ask what kind of soil am I being right now? Am I doing what I need to do to try and make the soil of my life the right conditions that lead to growth? This parable, it's forcing us to take an honest inventory of our lives. Is my life producing the kind of things that Jesus says that it should? Am I growing in love for neighbor? Am I becoming more joyous, more generous, Am I becoming more patient, more kind, more self-disciplined? Do I care about the poor, the oppressed? Is church and prayer and community a priority for me? Or are the various things in my life 
be it hardship or pleasure, adversity or too much opportunity, crowding out my ability to live for Jesus. So here's a question I want you to ask. And I want you to ask this with intense vulnerability and honesty. Does my life today look more or less like Jesus wants than it did a year ago? How about five years ago? What about 10 years ago? Am I more passionate about Jesus? Am I growing in obedience? Or has my desire to follow waned, become less of a priority? And here's the important part. Regardless of how you answer that question, maybe you're like, dude, James, this has been a really good season. That's awesome. We're going to celebrate that. Or maybe you're like, I'm, I'm wallowing a little bit in my faith. It doesn't matter if you're growing or you're growing stale. Whatever the case is, we need to always be working at cultivating the environment for Jesus' message to take root and grow in our lives. Once you stop working on that, that's when you're going to start to decline. This is an always thing. Now, three ways that you might make cultivating good soil part of your life, and you got to forgive me for being cheesy here. Uh, I'm going to try and work in the imagery of this story because, you know, preaching and stuff. you got to do that. But the first thing is this. It's important for us to constantly be having the conversation with ourselves and with our families of whether or not we're creating the space that we need for our roots to grow. I feel like this has become my soapbox a little bit, and I apologize, I don't want it to be. But if you don't have enough time for the things Jesus wants in your life, there's a problem. If you don't have enough emotional space, relational space, energy to invest in the things that Jesus wants you to, something's got to give. Now, this is not something that we always get right or always get wrong. This is really like a back and forth tension thing that we should always be working on, a continual conversation. So here's my proposed action plan for you. If you have a family weekly meeting or you just take time every week to go over your calendar by yourself if you're not married. It's important to create time in those family planning meetings or self-planning meetings to ask the question, is there not enough time in my space or is there enough space in my calendar this week or this month to give the time to Jesus that he needs? By asking that as a regular part of your routine, you start to create that tension. We're all busy. We're always going to be busy. But this allows us to be self-reflective. Is there enough time for me to invest in my life with Jesus? Or do I need to say no to things to create that space? Now, um, secondly, we got to kill the thorns in our lives. Jesus described the thorns as like the worries of this world, the deceits of, of riches, and uh, in Jesus' time, what they would do is they would a lot of times burn the weeds and plow them under. 
uh, to try and get rid of these like thorny weeds. One of the problems here is uh, it didn't stop the seeds of these thorny weeds from going all over the place. And so they would plant their seeds and throughout the growing season, more thorns would keep growing up. If any of you has a neighbor with grapevines, you understand what I'm talking about here. For real. But what the farmers would have to do is they would have to regularly try and take care of these thorny plants that were growing up in their soil. And I think that making sure that worldly worries and the traps of wealth don't crowd out our faith should probably be similar. It should probably just be a regular pattern or habit that's a part of our lives. You know, most of us, we feel that tension of so many good things vying for our time and our money and our energy. And how those things, uh, sorry, those things, we feel them, they end up creating that scenario that Jesus talks about where all of a sudden we've said yes to so much that we don't have the room for Jesus. It easily ends up feeling like the thorns are choking out the seed. One way we can make killing those thorns a regular part of our lives, it's simple. Create a vision of what your life should look like in Jesus. And let this be something that guides the decisions you make about how you live. This is like standard practice in any leadership book from the last 195 years. Uh, But having a vision, it gives you the opportunity to know where you're trying to go and then to make intentional choices that help you get there. A lot of times we come to Jesus and we just go on making choices willy-nilly about our lives without ever stopping to ask the question, what do I think my life in Jesus should look like? So what I would love for you to do at some point is ask yourself, what do I think life with Jesus should look like? And this, you reevaluate it often, of course, but maybe your vision is that you want to live a life where your church community is a priority and you want to live a life where your kids have relationships with other adults that are passionate about Jesus, where each year you're giving a little bit more than you did the year before and where you are making prayer a part of your family's life together, and where you're regular in worship, and where you're being guided by Scripture, whatever that vision looks like for you, when you have prayerfully taken some time to figure it out, all of a sudden you have this tool that helps you constantly evaluate what you do and do not commit your life to. You get to ask, is doing this thing... helping us live into our vision? Or is it detracting from us being able to live what we think life in Christ looks like? So let me encourage you. If you're married, sit down and ask together, what do we think it should look like to live and follow Jesus together? If you've got kids, bring your kids into it. What does it look like for our family to follow Jesus together? If you're single, what does it look like for me to follow Jesus? And write it down. Hang it on your bulletin board. Go borrow your friend's cricket or whatever that thing is called and make some sort of cool poster that you can hang right when you walk inside of your house. Make it obvious so that that vision becomes something that guides your choices together. And then take time regularly to reevaluate it so that as you grow in wisdom, your vision of what life looks like in Jesus can change accordingly. Now finally, um, and I gotta say, this is James's opinion, not straight from the Bible, but there are certain things that seem to be non-negotiables 
that every Christ follower should have in order to cultivate good soil. You gotta go to church. Good soil doesn't stay good unless it has the influence of other Christians, unless it regularly encounters the Bible preached and taught, unless it regularly sets itself to worship our God. On top of that, we've got to be engaged in some sort of more intimate Christian community where we have the chance to humble ourselves and be vulnerable and open, pray for each other. We've also got to make time to serve. Jesus is pretty clear. A life with Jesus looks like a life of service. It has been my experience that soil tends to not produce fruit when those factors aren't present. It just is what it is. Now, as we wrap up today, I hope that you see this in our story. That in every scenario, the farmer is the same. The seed is the same. The thing that makes the difference and whether that seed produces fruit or not is the soil. We are the soil. And even though we are saved by grace through faith, we still have a responsibility to cultivate our lives in a way that allows the message of Jesus to flourish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the stories that you told through Jesus. Some are funny, some are not. Some are encouraging, some are convicting. God, we need all of those things. Thank you for giving them to us. I pray today that you help us be continually self-reflective about what kind of soil we're being. I ask that you give us the wisdom to understand what it should look like to live with you and to make choices that help us align that vision with the reality of our lives. Help us kill those thorns. Help us grow deep roots that sustain us even in the midst of hardship. Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen.